your Bibles, go with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. While you're turning there, uh, one more quick thing, Grow. If you've signed up for Grow, remember it's right after the 11 a.m. service in our youth room. Um, and if you haven't signed up, and, but you were planning on going anyways, uh, make sure that you head on into our youth room. There's signs up on the walls. You can see where all that is at. Uh, but uh, that's going to start uh, pretty quick after our 11 a.m. service, which is the service that you're in. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13 says this. This is Paul writing, and he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Come over, shout content this morning. Content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says a verse that he writes something that most of us have heard. Um, probably one of the most fa- famous passages of scripture there is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Strengthens me. This morning as we continue on with our series Christmas, I want to speak to you from the subject, the character of contentment. The character of contentment. As we look at what is a byproduct of joy found right here in the, in the Bible. This idea of contentment. And the things that make up contentment. That's going to kind of be the path this morning. Will you pray with me just one more time before we dig in? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive and it's active. That it's powerful. I thank you for this season that we're in right now. I thank you for these amazing people that, that make the church what it is. I thank you for this year. 2017 has been such an amazing year. A year of advancement, a year of growth, a year of experiencing your presence as a community. God, I pray that today as we continue to to build as a community, as we continue to unite as a community, that all of us would do so underneath the banner of your name, Jesus. We thank you for this moment that we have to be together, to dig into your word. Our hearts are open, our ears are listening. Would you speak to us right now? We love you and we worship you in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody shouted, amen. Amen. My daughter had an epiphany uh, a couple weeks back. Um, We're teaching our kids, like parents do, we're teaching our kids all these kind of different things about how to, how to grow up and be thankful for things and appreciate things and so on and so forth. And so we uh, had them go downstairs, they're getting ready for bed, and as per normal, after they brush their teeth and get everything ready, they hop into bed, and mom and dad come down, and uh, we, we, we pray with them, and we say our goodnights, and wrestle with them a little bit, and just goof off in general, and then, you know, get them into bed, tuck them in. So we walked into Shiloh's room, and Shiloh's crying, like, not just like whimpering, but like crying, like crocodile tears, crying. And so I was like, ooh, I'm out of here. And so, <laughs> Erica, <laughs> and so I went into my son's room who was not crying. He was playing with something in the air and throwing it and speaking gibberish. So I was like, this is more my line of parenting. And so, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, so I hear them over, uh, I overhear them talking in the room as I'm getting justice to quiet down. And, and, and I hear Shiloh say to Erica behind these crocodile tears, mommy. I think about toys more than I think about Jesus. Yeah. And then I was like, see you, Justice. I'm going to go in the good room. And so um, <laughs> so we went in there and started having a conversation with Shiloh. And she was telling us how she has found herself, caught herself thinking about her toys more than she was thinking about Jesus. Which as a parent, you're like, yes, I'm winning. Right? You think that it's, that it's getting in. And so we had to talk to her. her. Her mom's talking to her before I talked to her because more than likely I would screw up the situation. But 
mom's talking to her and saying, well, baby, it's all right. Like, we know, like, and, and Jesus knows your heart. And while we know that you're probably thinking about toys and it's fun season and everything like that, we know that you love Jesus, and Jesus knows that you love him, and, and so on and so forth. And then I got in, and I was like, well, Shiloh, you got to understand the theological ramifications of this. Just kidding, I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> but we were like, baby, you know, like, we gotta, you got to understand something. Like, this is, this is humanity in you, right? This is, this is how we think. And as I walked away from that situation and started thinking about it, the reality is this, is that most of us are kind of the same way. Because what is she really struggling with at the end of the day? She's struggling with this issue of contentment, right? She's struggling with this battle that happens in our humanity where, where we see stuff and things, and, and whether those stuff and things are, are, are toys or, or, you know, jobs or relationships or cars or houses or advancement or popularity or whatever it may be. The, the, the thing about it is, is that in our, in our lack of contentment, the issue just really grows as we grow, Right? What was once a doll, then a doll house, becomes a house in the progression of our life. And this issue with contentment, we're always battling with it. So right here in Philippians chapter 4, context is important. How many of you know that? Understanding why something is being written is super important. And so Paul the Apostle is writing the book of Philippians, the letter Philippians, to this Philippian church. The interesting thing is, is that many theologians and scholars would agree that Philippians is probably one of the most joyful letters that you will read in, in like literally the entirety of Scripture. From the, from the beginning to the end, from Old Testament to, to New Testament, Philippians is probably one of the most joyful books that you will read. Why? Because it's all that it's about. And then the subsequent realities that affect our life because of joy. And this issue, contentment, that Paul shows us right here. He says, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content is actually part of joy. Joy is the expression, like contentment is the expression of joy. And they, kind of, they work hand in hand together. And so Paul's writing this. How do we know this? Paul's writing this letter not from a beach in some exotic location drinking a Mai Tai. Right? Some of you are now questioning the theological ramifications of Paul drinking a Mai Tai. Stop. Okay? <laughs> He's not writing from exotic beach. He's not writing from somewhere in this beautiful place. Paul's writing this letter in a prison. He's writing this letter in shackles and in chains. And it wasn't like a nice prison. Right? Prisons in this day were one of the worst places that you could possibly find yourself. Many would simply die from being in prison because the, the people who had imprisoned them would usually forget about their prisoners and they would just pass away from hunger, so on and so forth. So Paul the Apostle, I've always found this interesting, how is it that Paul writes one of the most joyful letters that he could ever write in prison? And I think it's because Paul has been experiencing a measure of something that he's now teaching us about, and that is contentment. Joy. And that's why he says, whatever situation I find myself in, I am to be content. And learning to be content is difficult reality for most of us to negotiate in our lives. Why? Because of a very sobering truth. And it's this, the reality of humanity, we are notoriously hard to satisfy. Come on, would you agree with me this morning? We're hard to satisfy. We, we find it difficult to be satisfied. And the issue of contentment is especially realized in the season that we find ourselves in right now. As we tend to find ourselves measuring our haves and our have-nots. A season where we're more aware than ever of our wants and our desires and our preferences and our most selfish of inclinations. 
And so this morning, I want to deal with the issue of contentment. Why? Because contentment squarely deals with the life-controlling power of unfulfilled desires, ambitions, and our every driving need for, for more. And so Paul highlights a few things concerning contentment that I believe are really important for us to understand. Do I have any readers in here? People who love to read novels, books with characters. Show hands. Come on, put them up. Put them by. Don't, don't be. Okay, cool. So that's a lot of you in here. Um, I don't like these books because... <laughs> I struggle with reading, um, but uh, I have a hard time. I love leadership books. I love linear books. I love books kind of, of of that nature, but I always struggle with novels, especially like in high school when you had to start reading them. It's because character profiling for me in my mind is, is, is crazy. Like, it's difficult. I have a hard time reading a book. My, lo- my wife loves to read novels, and she can develop these characters, and she starts telling me about these characters, and I'm like, I don't care. Um... <laughs> because <laughs> I can't see what you see, right? And so she sees these things, and, and many of you who read books like this, you, do the, you have the ability to do the same thing, start de- the details, and so you'll, you'll be fascinated. You'll be into a book. Like she's looked up from a book before, and she's like, I love this character so much. There's so much depth and reality to him. And I'm like, <laughs> um. <laughs> But this is what Paul's doing right here in Philippians, actually. He's giving us the character profile of contentment. And there's some things that if we're, it, it, just by like kind of skimming over this piece of scripture, you'd go, man, I, I'm not seeing that. Well, I'm going to help us this morning look through Philippians 4, 10 through 13, and we're going to look at the character profile of contentment. And so I want us to look at what I call the characteristics of contentment. Let's look at them. There are four of them today. If everybody shout number one for me. Come on. Number one, the first one is this, is the presence of appreciation. The presence of appreciation. The first thing about about contentment, the first character profile of contentment is appreciation. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, he says this, I rejoice in the Lord <clears throat> greatly that now at length you have, re- you have revived your concern for me. Now what Paul's dealing with is something that had been taking place for a while there. This Philippian church had once given to aid Paul's missionary journey. They were, they were helping him in the endeavors that he was a part of. And then there's a gap. This gap where the Philippian church was no longer engaged in. There's a couple different reasons why and we can surmise. But now Paul's saying, hey, look, I appreciate the fact that I'm hearing from you now that you want to revive your concern for me. You want to you involve yourselves once again in the, the endeavors that I'm a part of, his missionary journeys. You can read about those through the, through the book of Acts. But what he's saying here is like, listen... No matter where you're at in this whole thing, whether you're, whether you're working with me or you're not working with me, I appreciate you. That's what he's saying to the Philippian church. And the beginning of contentment is appreciation. And I think that as a culture and as a society as a whole, we have moved away from people of appreciation to a people of entitlement. We somehow now believe that we deserve everything, whatever that thing may be. Come on, somebody. Don't get quiet on me in this church this morning. See, the problem with that is entitlement is the antithesis of contentment. It's the complete opposite. If we believe that we deserve everything, then we are never satisfied. Because how many of you know we will never have everything? We'll never have everything. It's an, it's an impossibility. And when we think that we have everything, have you ever found out? Like, you think that you have everything, and you've quickly realized that you have nothing, and so then there's this desire for We're never satisfied, right? But when we learn to appreciate what we have and what we don't have, then we can find and actually experience contentment. The first character 
piece of contentment is appreciation. Contentment has eluded us because we have not learned the art of appreciation. Come on, appreciation's an art. Learning how to appreciate people, it's an art. Learning how to appreciate things is an art. We're right now working with our kids to be please and thank you type of people, no matter what it is, right? So we cooked Brussels sprouts the other night. Brussels sprouts, we, we, uh, they're so good. I love Brussels sprouts. Man, some of you are like, oh, that's how I feel about novels. Um, so <laughs> Brussels sprouts and, and um, I, those potatoes that are orange, sweet potatoes, um, that's what they are. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So we bake them, and, and I was making this really nice dinner for the family, like a healthy dinner, and, and I was pumped about it. And as a parent, when you're going through this, like you always have those dreams that are never going to actually be realized. Like you have the dream of laying out what it is that you're preparing for your kids, because I do the cooking in the house, and because uh, I love to cook. And so I'm thinking, I'm going to get it out there, and I'm going to put it down, and, and, and of course the kids are going to sit there, and they're going to put their napkins in their laps, and they're going to say, oh, Father, thank you for the healthy bounty that thus thou have placed in front of me doesn't work that way, actually. Justice quickly chimes in and says, what is this? <laughs> like, it's Brussels sprouts. Now, Shiloh, my little girl, this is why she's my favorite. Um, don't tell my son that. <laughs> says, mm, Dad, I love Brussels sprouts. And I'm like, that's right, girl. <laughs> that's right. And so when we got into that moment, the first thing my retort wasn't scold justice. It was simply say, well, what do we say for it? Right? Like, what do we say? Thank you, Dad. <laughs> and Shiloh's like, thanks, Dad. This is awesome, right? Like, so she's pumped, pumped about it. But we're trying to get them, please, and, and thank you. And, Dad, can I not eat my Brussels sprouts? How do we ask? Can I please not eat my Brussels sprouts, right? Because I'm going to work it any way to get this in here. Why? Because we're trying to teach our kids the act of appreciation. Because I don't want them to learn by default the act of entitlement. That I get what I want, when I want it, how I want it, because that's the way the world works. Because how many of you know, come on, it doesn't work that way. And for so many of us, we're conflicted, we're frustrated, because we have the mindset of entitlement versus the mindset of appreciation. And so we struggle thanking God for things. Even the hard things in our life. We struggle with thanking God for relationships. We struggle with thanking God for the job that we have that we hate. Right? We struggle with all the things that we kind of negotiate in life because we haven't learned the art of appreciation. Listen to what 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says. It says this, rejoice always. <laughs> you heard that right. Always. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Do you know what all means? All means all, and that's all all means. That's deep right there. <laughs> Wait, no, just in some situations? No, all, all situations. Wait, just good situations, right? No, no, no. All situations. We've got to give thanks in all situations. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Have you ever wondered what's the will of God for your life? You ever asked that question before? This is really funny. Um, this is a comment that I get and a question that I get in coffees and lunches and at dinners all the time from people. Jason, how do I figure out what the will of God is? Well, read the Bible. No, that's got to be more. <laughs> it's a big book. <laughs> What's the will? He says it right here. Rejoice always. Wait, am I doing that? 
Like seriously, this, this, this is it right here. If you wonder what the will of God is, many times we're missing the will of God because we refuse the simplicity of his will. What's the will of God? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Did you know you, you could step into the will of God the minute you step out of these doors by simply going, hey, today I'm rejoicing always, I'm praying without ceasing, I'm giving thanks in all circumstances, today I'm in the will of God, right? Because that's what it is. We talked about how we have a tendency to complicate things in the first part of this, this series. So go back and listen to that because it is really simple so many times. In other words, our lives should be marked by appreciation and contentment is found by those that learn to appreciate. Simply put, let's learn to be able to say thank you to God. Just thank you, God. Today is a really, really bad day. Thank you, God. Today is a really, really awesome day. Thank you, God. Today I've got literally no money in the bank. Thank you, God. Today I've got all the money in the world in the bank. Thank you, God. Today my house is just not what I want it to be. It's falling apart. I need a new house, but I can't afford a house. Thank you, God. Today I'm so blessed by this house. Thank you, God. Today this relationship, this marriage, whatever it may be, is not going the way that I want it to. Thank you, God. Today this is an awesome relationship. This is an awesome. Thank you, God. We're learning how to appreciate no matter where we are at today, it's Brussels sprouts. Thank you, God. <laughs> today, it's filet mignon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's when we get some attitude. Thank you, Jesus. Let's <laughs> see how it goes. <laughs> so the first character of contentment is the presence of appreciation. Come on, we shout number two. Number two. The second one is this, the skill of adaptability. The skill of adaptability. You're like, well, that's... I don't know if that, how does that work? Let me explain. Philippians 4, 11 through 12, watch what he says. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, contentment should become the baseline for our lives. This is why Paul writes, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In other words, he's now allowed his faith to help him become adaptable to any and every situation. That's when faith in Jesus actually becomes practical. It's not this ethereal concept. It's not this aloof reality. Paul is saying to us, we have the ability to live and negotiate life in such a way that no matter what's happening, I can adapt to it. I can figure it out instead of becoming Jerry Maguire when everything is not going the way it's supposed to go. And you grab your fish and you protest God. I'm not going to freak out. But how many of us do that? failing to trust Jesus in the midst of things because we haven't learned that part of contentment, the, another character piece of contentment is adaptability. What a powerful truth. This is the idea that nothing external is going to dictate my internal contentment. Not the Joneses, not the latest and greatest, not the newest and most advanced, not the bigger and better or shiny and surreal, no matter what it is. And this is where we have a tendency to struggle, isn't it? And it goes back to the beginning of it all. Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7. And it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's a lot to extrapolate from this piece of scripture. But I've always found it interesting that with everything that Adam and Eve had at their disposal and for their enjoyment, it was the need for just one more that led them into temptation. Think about that. Let's go back to the conversation that the serpent has with Eve. He says, did not God say that you couldn't eat of any tree? No, no, no. And then she clarifies, right? She goes, no, God didn't say that I couldn't eat of anything. He said I just couldn't eat of that one thing. Lest ramifications. So she literally says, she argues back, she says, I actually have the ability, I've got the freedom to enjoy 99.9% of all this that God has given us to enjoy. But he said, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't touch that thing. And as I read this scripture, I'm going to push off of the Bible just a little bit, just hold it over there for a minute. But as I kind of read between the lines, I wonder if God was trying to deal with this contentment issue. See, many interpret this moment in Scripture saying, see, God's bad. He doesn't want us to enjoy things. He doesn't want us to have everything. No, no, he gave 99% of this stuff for them to enjoy. I just wonder if it's like, hey, I want to deal with this contentment issue in here. Why? Because what, there's always got to be the other side of it for us to wrestle with. Otherwise, we have everything. I'll explain that in just a few minutes when we talk about Paul and how he's actually writing these things. But... It gets the better of them. So what happens? The woman sees it this way. She says that the tree was good for food, delightful to the eyes, and desired to make one wise. And because of that, she made the decision that everything else that they had was not good enough. I needed more. So what does this have to do with adaptability? Well, I think it actually speaks to one of the greatest issues that we face is that we have a struggle. We have a hard time adapting to that which we do not have. So we do everything in our power to shuffle, to hustle, to do our thing, right? To get mine. I'm going to make this happen to get to that next thing that I want. Instead of learning to adapt and be content and go, God, no matter what the situation is, no matter where I'm staring at, that, like no matter what life is looking like, no matter what I'm staring at, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be centered. I'm going to be the type of person that can stand stationary because contentment is the baseline of my life. And I don't need to look to the left. I don't need to look to the right. I can look straight ahead and I can keep my eyes fixed on you because you are everything that I could possibly need. And when things are going good, that's fine. And when things are going bad, that's fine. Why? Because I know at the end of the day, if I'm connected to the one I need to be connected to, it's all going to work out because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what he's saying. Adapt. We've got to learn to adapt. And what would the world look like if Christians stopped freaking out about everything? I want church to be uncomfortable for us as Christ followers. <laughs> Why? Because we're challenged to live the way that God. What happens if 
we stopped picketing and boycotting everything and being mad at everything and it didn't go my way and I didn't get this and I didn't get that. What if we learned to be content? Why? Because when we're stationary and we're content, we actually draw influence. We have the ability to be influential. My family lived in California in 1989 for the, the earthquake of 1989. This is the only thing I know about baseball, but it was the Giants and the A's playing. <laughs> there was an earthquake during this World Series, so that shows you how God feels about baseball. And so, <laughs> Brad, that was for you. I love you, bud. <laughs> and so, I was in California at this time, and, and uh, I remember where I was at. I was at school, uh, at, a, at like an after-school rec program. And I'll never forget it, I was playing this game, there was a bunch of us little boys just hanging around, it was 1989, and all of a sudden we, we heard this like stampede almost type noise, and I didn't know what was going on, and the teachers like, they stood alert, and every, everybody started to kind of like, you know, when, when chaos is about to ensue, have you ever, you ever watched that happen like in a public space when chaos is about to ensue, and you can watch it, it start like the feathers of everybody starting to get ruffled, and, and especially with kids, it's starting to go there, and, and all of a sudden, the noise hit, and, and I, I can't even really describe what the noise was, but I remember looking to the far side of the auditorium, and as I watched the floor go in waves, waves, I'm watching tile just start going, like this, like you see out of a movie, and, and I can still remember it, I can still remember the feeling, uh, and, and even the smells of this moment, as this little kid is watching this wave of tile happen through, through the, the, the auditorium, this cafeteria, and all of a sudden, when everybody realized what was happening, it wasn't a kid that panicked, it was a teacher that panicked, and he yells like a, like a girl with the highest pitch earthquake! which then sent the auditorium into a panic. Like, kids are like up and running around. This is like young kids, and they're running around. Ah! Right? No, like, no one even knew what to do at this point. Have you ever seen those little monkeys that hold on to antennas on cars? Right? This is what small children look like on the, on the bottom of a cafeteria table with wheels as they just went across the auditorium as everything is shifting. These kids are just holding on for dear life, right? Kids are running around everywhere. And I want you to get the chaos of this situation because this is what it is to be a Christ follower who's content. And everything's going crazy and stuff's flying off the walls and stuff is moving and shifting. And then there was that one teacher who literally stood in the middle of the auditorium, this cafeteria, and said, hey, everybody get to here. And it was her voice of authority, it was her voice of confidence, it was her voice of nothing else is going to rock me. It was that voice that stopped the panic and the confusion and the fear and they said, oh, ah. and all of a sudden kids in order are in door frames and underneath tables that aren't missiles in the auditorium. And all of this started happening. Why? Because there was somebody with a measure of it's going to be okay. I don't know about you, but I think the church should be that beacon of light in the generation that we're living in right now. I think the church should be that stationary piece in a world that's changing and is frustrated and is broken and is hurting. What if we were that? Oh, that's what the Bible says, a city on a hill, a light. Come on, somebody. But what does it mean? It means we've got to learn the skill of adaptability, that no matter what's going on in my life, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Come on, number three, every shot, number three. 
The third piece of contentment is this, is the disposition of dependency. The disposition of dependency. Verse 13, watch what Paul says. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That, that is the statement of dependency. I don't know if you've ever made this statement before, but I know that I've made this statement before, and it went something like this. Man, I hope that this thing happens because my life depends on it. Come on, you ever made that statement before? You ever, like, kind of thought about that in your mind and, 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 and dictated that kind of idea towards something that was happening in your life? And at first glance, it's really not that big of a deal, but it's amazing what it means for our lives. I wasn't saying that I was actually going to die if this thing didn't happen, but what I was saying was that my well-being, my peace of mind, my joy and overall attitude was dependent upon something that did not have the ability, power, or strength for it to be dependent upon. It was unreliable at best. Come on, how many of you know that the world around us is not reliable to be dependent upon? Right? And so many of us are dependent upon our jobs, our relationships, our stuff and our things, our money, our status, our position and rank. The problem is that none of these things can or should be relied upon. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 9. Watch what it says. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content, there's that word, with what you have, no matter the season. All right? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then watch 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then here's what I want you to hear. This is what we need to know. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So don't, watch what it then goes on to say. So don't be led away, led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. See, this is the truth that changes everything. Times change, people change, style changes, thank God. Seasons change. Everything changes, but God, but God, he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It means that I can station my hope in him. I can station my life in him. I can station my joy, as Pastor Justin was talking about this morning, in him. I can station everything that I am in him. Why? Because he's not going to change. He's not going to let me down. He's not going to move me into a place that he's not going to sustain me. He's dependable, and he's safe and responsible with his nature and character. I wonder if we depend on him. Dependency begins, do you want to know where dependency is and how we find this? Watch. Dependency begins where you and I end. See, this go, like when you can no longer hustle it and make it work for yourself or get it done by your own willpower or what somebody else may do. Because how many of you know, man, things are changing all the time. That job, you can't depend on it. Because how many of us have heard, oh, company policy, things are changing, company policy. You no longer have a job, company policy. <laughs> All right? Our 401k, they're going to change. The values of our homes, they're going to change. 
the outlook and trajectory of, of whatever you fill in the it's going to change. One thing that history has shown to us, everything changes. But God has remained the same. Come on, that's exciting news right there. God has remained the same. Why? Because he wants to let us know that we can depend upon him. I can depend upon him. Dependence is every season, every sequence, every situation, and every station of life. Number four. Come on, everybody shout number four. The last one is this. So we talked about this morning, we've talked about appreciation. Remember, this is the character profile of contentment. Appreciation. We've looked at uh, uh, adaptability. We've looked at dependency. And the last one is this, number four, the acknowledgement of sufficiency. The acknowledgement of sufficiency. Verses 19 and 20, Paul then lands the plane with one of the most beautiful summations of the nature and character of God and how we experience contentment. And he says this, and my God, verse 20, 19 and 20, and my God will supply every need of yours according to to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that. Probably one of my most favorite pieces of scripture. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, the last characteristic of contentment is sufficiency. The reality that Christ is sufficiency and sufficient and sufficiency is found in Christ. Love that idea. In other words, everything you need, come on, hear me. Look at me when I say this. Everything you need is found in Christ. And that's hard for us to assimilate because you're like, well, wait a second. I need, I need, I need, I need this, I need this, I need that. But then I, re but with this, do you really? Do I really need that? I think that's going to make me happy, but then when I get it, I'm no longer happy. Again, this series is not our attempt to make everything look bad. It's not about that. What I'm trying to help us see is that everything outside of Christ really at the end of the day should be benign to us. It shouldn't hold power over us. That's the essence of contentment, that nothing holds power over my life except Christ and Him crucified. The only power that, I, that, that has control over me is Jesus, and so I follow Him. I give Him everything. I pursue Him. Why? Because He's that good. He's that amazing. He's that grand. He is that awesome. He's Jesus. Second Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Paul writing. And this is where we see it. Paul knew it. He got it. He understood it because of this issue. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited. I want you to hear that first part. This is what's so cool about the Bible. Is if, if God really wanted an amazing PR campaign, he would have never had these yahoos doing this. Seriously. He would have had a bunch of perfectionists. People who were perfect, but he didn't. So what does Paul write? He says, so to keep me from being conceited. Come on. We've all been there at one point or another. We get a little cocky. Right, we get a little arrogant. And Paul, definitely. And that's what he says. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing, then he goes on to kind of tell why he should be conceited. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. In other words, because of all the stuff that I know. He was smart. 
He knew things. And he said, because of that, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. You ever, you ever pleaded with God to remove the thing that you felt was inflicting you? And yet it never goes away? And this is what Paul says. Watch this. But he said to me, I'm not going to remove that. I'm not going to get rid of that. Because my grace is sufficient for you. Because if I remove the thing that inflicts you, if I remove the thing that keeps you humble, my grace will no longer be sufficient for you. You will become arrogant. You will become conceited. You will become all of these things. So I need to have something in your life that causes you to rely on my sufficiency, which causes you to rely on me. So stop praying away the very thing that God uses to keep you focused on him. That's how we're content. I got this thing, man. So many of us struggle with this issue. So there's this quote about this particular piece of scripture, and I end on this. New American Commentary, speaking about this moment right here, says this. We learn from the message given to Paul that God's grace is not just the unmerited favor that saves us. Right? He's talking about this issue. Jesus dies on the cross. We with faith say yes to him, and because of that grace, we have eternity, right? It's nothing more, nothing less. It's not about anything you can earn or do. That's it's unmerited favor, grace in Christ. But watch what he says. So it's not just the unmerited favor that saves us, but a force that also sustains us throughout our lives. And then he goes on to write this. The miracle is that the same divine power that accomplishes all that God wills dwells in frail persecuted and abased people. In other words, the sufficiency of God's grace is for you and me. Broken, messed up, unreliable, a little weird sometimes, dysfunctional, a little weird most of the time, hurting, tired, Come on, you fill in the blanks. It's for all of us. It's for every single one of us. His grace is for the alcoholic and the drug addict. His grace is for the rich and for the poor. His grace is for the businessman and the laborer. His grace is for all of us who are in between all of it. His grace is for anybody and Everybody. It is no respecter of persons. It is no respecter of backgrounds. It is no respecter of race and creed and financial ability. It is no respecter of your job or your position or your rank or your file. It is no respecter of your popularity or the neighborhood which you came from or the neighborhood which you didn't come from. It is no respecter of any one of those things. His grace is sufficient for all of us because he saw us on the cross. He loved us on the cross. His grace is for all of us. And so I acknowledge the sufficiency of that grace, and I say, God, in everything that I am, may I be content in you. That is the gospel. That is the goodness of God. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. That is why we're taking the mass 
out of Christmas, saying it's Christ, and the season of my life is going to represent that, Him, to His glory. In Jesus' name, come on, would you stand to your feet with me?